0: Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now last week we jumped into the car strapped on our Bible belts and drove hard through chapters nine and the first 18 verses of chapter 10. Glenn called it motoring he said I knew you were motoring like two verses in and I was driving to get through a lot of cover some ground and uh, and he was right on and there's a reason for that. It was an important reason, and I want to point it out, because it has to do with how God expresses truth to us in the Scriptures. Again, last week we were driving, but we were driving by way of reminder along the road of recap. We were going over things that had been stated, and restated, and explained, and re-explained, and looked at, and reviewed over and over for ten chapters in this letter. That is what God does. Chapters 9 and 10, what we looked at last week, the pastor was reiterating that once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line. If you look back at chapter 9, verse 11, he said, When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say not of this creation, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now we know that. He's already said that, but he's now saying it again. And then in verse 13 of chapter 9, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Skip over to chapter 10 and look at verse 10. And I just plucked these two examples out. But in verse 10 he says, by this, that is by this new covenant, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You know the word offering is repeated 15 times in chapters 9 and 10. Fifteen times, offering, 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 over and over and over. The offering that is Jesus, the offering that is done by Jesus, as we've said, both Lamb and High Priest, both sacrifice and the one who brings it, and really what's happening in chapters 9 and 10 is the pastor is bringing it home and reviewing for us all that, that took place so far. He uses the word offering more in Hebrews 9 and 10 than is used in any other single chapter in the entire New Testament. So he's really landing in this place. Have you noticed how often when you read through the Bible or study the Bible or even just sit through sermons over a period of time going through the Bible that the Lord circles back around and tends to take us on scenic roads of Scripture? You would almost say, "Oh, Lord, we, we've we've studied that before," and He'd say, "Yes, you have. Listen up," and He repeats it again. We find this from Genesis through Revelation. The repetition of God. I would call it the inspiration of reiteration. You you can write that down. (laughs) The inspiration of reiteration. God reiterates. God repeats. The Lord continues to bring these themes. And, And if you boil it all down, I mean, ultimately, you know it all comes down to one person, and that's Jesus Christ. But the themes of Scripture from beginning to end are simple and are not that many and yet the word is so profound, you never plumb its depths. You know that's that's the way God works. Peter understood this. He said in Second Peter chapter three verse one, "This is now beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles." Why does God do that? James tells us so that we would, James 1.21, in humility receive the word implanted. He doesn't want to scatter seeds on the surface of the heart. He wants them to get in deep. And so he brings it again and again because God knows the word must get in because it expresses his heart to your heart, to my heart, as finally revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who is, as you know, the same Today, today, and tomorrow. Thank you. Forever is real. But tomorrow's good too because tomorrow continues forever. The same yesterday and today and forever. And so that's why I-, I wanted to do the whole chapter because, again, he continues to repeat these things over and over, offering, 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 offering. And so we covered some ground last week. We're going to cool our engines a bit tonight. We're just going to finish out chapter 10, although I'll take my time to do it. But as the pastor sums up this doctrinal section of the sermon, he's going to literally complete it, and then we'll head into the final segment of the letter to the Hebrews, the the thesis that he's been working on. It's been building again from chapter 1 through chapter 10. In chapter 19, he concludes the first 10 chapters. Brings it to a wonderful resolution, but within that resolution he does something marvelous I'll, I'll show you in just a minute. This is uh, in a style reminiscent of Paul, because verse 19 through 25 is one sentence. There are no breaks in it, there are no periods, there are no semicolons in the original letter. It's one sentence straight through from beginning to end. And if the pastor writer is not Paul, and, and there's some doubt there, I wonder if he hasn't at least been greatly influenced by Paul. Because he writes like Paul, not necessarily by word choice or even word style. Even in the high Greek, the the Greek writing that he utilizes is not exactly like a lot of Paul's other letters, which is what brings some of the doubt. But what makes people think, wow, but this could be Paul, is the very fact that you got these long sentences like this one right here, 19 through 25, and the pattern of the sermon follows the pattern of Paul's letters. Which is what? He always begins with doctrinal explanation followed by personal application. Every letter, that's what he does. He brings in the doctrine, and then at the end of the letter, he turns right around and then begins to apply it personally to our lives. This sermon is no different. It's classic Paul, if it was Paul or is Paul. Chapters 1 through 10 are the doctrine. Chapters 11 through 13 close the letter with, uh, did I say 11 through 13? That's what I meant, if I didn't. They close the letter with a three-part application. That is, chapter 11 is the application of faith. And chapter 12 is the application of hope. And chapter 13 is the application of love which again is very Pauline, 1 Corinthians thirteen, thirteen. but faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. But the last three chapters, if you want an outline for the practical section of the letter, that's it. Faith, hope, and love, 11, 12, 13. And we'll begin looking at that on Sunday. But here, the teaching part, the doctrine, comes to a marvelous conclusion. Verse 19 again. Therefore, brethren, therefore, based on all we've heard before, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. So, rounding out this tabernacle graphic that he's been using a picture very familiar to the Jewish Christians reading this letter, hopefully familiar to you too as well by now. He now says that just as the Jewish high priest entered the earthly tabernacle, so our greater high priest, Jesus, of the order of Melchizedek, an order that is both eternal and righteous and ruled by peace, so now our high priest enters the heavenly tabernacle. So he completes this parallel. There are two big differences which he points out here. Between Jesus our great high priest and the previous priesthood. Now he's already given these differences. But again he points out first that Jesus didn't just enter to plead for us like the previous priesthood. He entered so that we could enter. No other high priest had ever done that. No other high priest went in with the the plan, with the idea that if he went first, then the rest of Israel could follow. No way. Couldn't be done. Jesus did. He entered that we might enter. So, unlike Israel, we're not cringing in our campsites. You know, we're not trembling in our tents, waiting, hoping that the high priest is going to make it out alive somehow. No, we are preparing to follow him in. We are invited. To draw near. Let us draw near, he says. Because when Jesus triumphantly returned into heaven, he did something else that no high priest had ever done. Not only did he invite us to follow, but by his own blood, he paved the way. By his own flesh, we go in. That is, as the author says, his flesh is the veil. Verse 20. Through the veil that is His flesh. Why? Why is the flesh compared to the veil? Because we go to God through Jesus. In the same way that the prior priesthood went to God through the veil, we go to God as the new priesthood through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Which is why, in the piercing of His flesh, and at the moment of His death, the veil of the temple was torn you know that if you've studied these things. That is the beautiful picture in Scripture. Jesus said in John 10.9, I am the door. He said in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth in life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. That is through the veil. And behold, Matthew 27.51, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And Paul writes in Ephesians 2.17, and he that is Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. He is the veil. And when flesh and veil both were torn, waves of salvation began to roll across time. Still rolling today, as loudly today in fact, as when he cried, It is finished! I love what one commentator said about this. He said, Jesus spoke that so loudly, and it was so clear, and it is so immediately relevant, it's as if if He just said it. Like just now. Like the words are still hanging over us. It is finished! How many times has that one-word phrase, to Tetelestai, been repeated throughout 2,000 years of church history? Because it's fresh, it's relevant, it's what I would call the reverberation of the inauguration. That is, as he writes, he inaugurated for us through the veil a new and a living way. Inauguration. It's a great word. In the Greek it's inkidnizo. And it means to renew or to initiate to begin afresh to consecrate to dedicate something as as brand new so it's a renewal but it's not it's making new something that was never new before Hebrews 9:18 told us therefore even the first covenant was not inaugurated that is you know, dedicated consecrated without blood but here we learn Jesus inaugurated a new and living way now listen to those words A new way and a living way. Why is it new? Well, because Adam Clark called it, quote, an allusion to the blood of the sacrifice as newly shed and uncoagulated. Warm and fluid, proper to use for sprinkling. See, the blood of sacrifice had to be fresh. You didn't use old, coagulated, clotted, dried blood and kind of throw that on the altars. It was warm blood. It was freshly sacrificed blood. And spiritually speaking, note that spiritually speaking, when the soldiers speared the side of the Lord, John nineteen thirty four, and blood and water shot out. It's as though that blood were as fresh right now as it was two thousand years ago. He inaugurated our entrance into the holy of holies in a new way, a fresh way as fresh in the mind of God today as it was the moment that Jesus bled. First John 1.7 says, If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. The only blood that can cleanse from sin is fresh. And so this is a new way inaugurated for us. It's a living way. New and living, which is even more amazing because while He was sacrificed and the blood is yet fresh, Jesus is not dead. Every other sacrifice before was dead. Every other sacrifice, ultimately the blood would be useless, couldn't be used in the offering. But Jesus, His blood is still fresh and He's alive. He said in Revelation 1.17, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Let me tell you, if you happen to be someone who, like my brother Daniel, feel tonight like you're just so tired of all the false teaching out there, listen, do not be afraid. He is the first and the last. He is alive. He's got this. The false teaching is going to go on. You know, the lies are going to happen. The corrosion of morality, that's man. That's the stuff of the flesh. And it was happening in the first century just as it's happening now in 2018. But he is alive. His blood is fresh. This is a new and living deal. And he says, and since verse 21, we have a great high priest over the house of God. See, he's alive. He doesn't say since we have a great high priest who's in the grave. No, he's over the house of God. He's active in the house of God. You Bible students know, Revelation chapter 1, he's moving among the lampstands. He's in the churches. He's present among us and with us and in us. And we don't have to go looking a distance to try and find him. You don't have to travel to Israel to see Jesus. You don't even have to travel out here on a Wednesday night. He is with us now, immediate, new, and living, current. He is yesterday, today, and forever. And so as the inauguration continues its reverberation, we, verse 22, draw near. We draw near. By blood that's fresh, through a veil that is His flesh, And we come to a living, loving Savior. And I ask you, can you get any closer than that? You want to talk about intimacy. We enter in through His flesh. You can't get more personal. You can't draw any nearer than to be going literally through the flesh of Jesus Himself. He initiated that for us. It's part and parcel the intimacy that God has called us to. Enter in through me. No man comes to the Father but through me, Jesus says. Right into the heart of our Savior. And He renewed our relationship with Him. Which brings me to a, a second point. And the first point was the uh, reverberation of the inauguration. There was the one before that, but that was really just a bonus point. The second point is this. And what he's going to talk about now is the unity of the community. The unity of community. Since since all this has taken place, we have confidence to enter the holy place. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Since we go right through him to come in. Now, picking up in verse 22, we come to the unity of the community Note this in three verses. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. Did you catch the three varieties of lettuce here? Let us draw near with sincere faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Hope. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love. And what he's just done there is given us the outline for the rest of the book. So we see in those three verses, in those three statements of let us do this, let us have faith and hope and love. Chapter eleven he's going to go into what that looks like faith wise. And chapter twelve, he will portray our our understanding of hope. And then in chapter thirteen, he will lay out for us the love factor. Let us as a unified community come together in this way. Because the let us here, all three of these verses indicate togetherness. The unity of the community. Note these in order now. Let us draw near in faith with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. A fully assured faith. Is your faith fully assured? Now think about that question. I believe. I trust you, Lord. Is your trust in the Lord Jesus fully assured? Is it confident? Is it solid? And if you're not sure, listen. A fully assured faith comes of someone who has been changed inside and out. And he describes that for us. A sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hearts sprinkled speaks of the inner man, the inner woman. The spiritual man or the spiritual woman. Our hearts need that sprinkling. Now, growing up in the church I grew up in, I always misunderstood this verse. heart sprinkled. Why is he talking about sprinkling? The Greek word is rantizo. And you know in, in some traditions of the church, they sprinkle infants. Catholicism and, and some other denominations will, will do that. And so I always wondered about that because the word rantizo is never, ever used, not a single time in scripture, it's never used as a picture of baptism. That's the word baptizo, which is to immerse. Rantizo is to sprinkle, and that's what's used here. Hearts sprinkled. Well, you got to go back a lot further than Catholicism to understand the concept. The Hebrew writer was not dealing with Catholics in the first century. He was dealing with Hebrew thinking and the sprinkling which happened in the Holy of Holies, the sprinkling of the blood upon the altar. Hearts sprinkled goes right into the inside. Sprinkling to the Jewish mind always represented internal cleansing. A cleaning that that, that couldn't happen by the mikvah bath, which is the external. Look at verse 14 back in chapter 9. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience? The inner man, the inner woman. And so Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. A fully assured faith is one that has been sprinkled with the blood, knows that it is the blood sprinkling that has saved us. Bodies washed, he says. Well, again, that's the outer man. The Jewish mindset recognizes that sprinkling that would take place when the blood was sprinkled on the individual or in the Holy of Holies was the inner man. The outer man being washed, bodies washed, well, that happened all the time. It was the Jewish mikveh bath. Going down into the bath we've talked about. And there are tons of mikveh baths in Jerusalem right around the Temple Mount. Archaeological finds. And most of them found in the last 5 or 10 years. <laughs> that you walk down 10 or 12 steps literally into a bath. You dip completely. And then you come back out. Well, that's bodies washed. And the Jewish person thinking about that would recognize an outward representation of the inward man or woman having been cleansed. And they would go through the outward representation as they came into temple. Peter called that kind of washing, truly talking about baptism, 1 Peter 3.21, an appeal to God for a good conscience. You know, if you've been baptized, you know when you go into the water and come out, it's, it's not like it's not going to cleanse you in the same way that taking a shower with some good soap is going to do. You know, that water, we do our best to keep it clean. But we used to baptize in the Gilmore's pond. And when I baptized people in the pond, even wearing the waders, I had to go home and wash the pond water off my arms. Never knew what was floating around in there. It was not the water that cleansed, but it was it was an appeal to God. So bodies washed and hearts sprinkled Both internal and external intimacy are described. Let us hold fast a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Number two, let us hold fast our hope. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Well, that sounds impossible. Anybody hope without wavering? Can anybody honestly say, oh, I never waver"? I'm always like spot on in my hope. I never question one day to the next. Of course not. We all waver. How do we keep from wavering? For he who promised is faithful. Listen. This, this is a huge... and I, I, I think I kind of toyed with this a little on Sunday morning and perhaps even last Wednesday night. This has such huge practical implications for how we live our Christian lives. By focusing on the character of God in Christ, our hope becomes solid. Our faith is fully assured. Our love becomes a constant. By focusing on the character of God, for again, He who promised is faithful. There's your hope. It's not your faithfulness. How many times have we said this? If if we think our faithfulness is going to get us across the finish line, we're in trouble. Who's going to hope in that? And those who do put their hope in their own ability to get across the line will eventually lose hope. He who promised is faithful. So here's here's the thing. What do you do as a Christian when you don't know what to do? What do you do as, as a believer in Jesus, as a follower of Christ, when you're like... I don't have an answer here. I've searched the scriptures and I can't find it. No, that's not to say the answer's not there. But have you ever been in that place? You're looking for the verse to help you make your decision and you can't find a verse? And you've asked Christian brothers and sisters and one says one thing and one says another thing. And you're sitting there going, this decision is too much for me. What do I do? How do I... And and you have to make a decision. How do you make a decision like that? Listen. You make the decision based on the character of God, not on yourself. It's even greater than the advice that we find in Scripture. Remember what Jesus said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It is these that testify of me. And so Jesus came into this world to show us how God reacts in any given situation. What God does, what is His nature, what is His character, do that. If you know nothing else to do, stop spinning around in the soul and in the spirit say, what pleases Him? What does He desire here? What brings honor to Jesus? I guarantee you, every time you pause and you ask that question, you will have your answer if we try to spin out scenarios, if we try to rationalize maybe positions so that we can be more comfortable with what we really want to do, if you ask what pleases Him, you'll come to your answer every time. Because it's He who promised who is faithful. That's how we hold fast our hope. That's how our faith is assured. We're eyes on Him. And I'll come back to that thought in just a minute. Let's hold fast our hope Draw near in faith, verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. Boy, are you glad you're here tonight. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let us draw near in faith, let us hold fast our hope, and let us, number three, love provocatively. Which is what he's saying. Let us consider how to stimulate, how to provoke one another to love and to good deeds. That word stimulate is provoke. It's paroxysmos. To provoke one another, to, to come alongside someone literally and to sharpen, incite, or provoke them. And it can be used positively or negatively. Clearly he's calling for the positive. Let's provoke love. Let's do things that causes other believers to love more. And to pursue good deeds more. That's what the church is about. Do you realize the church is one big fat provocation? It is to the world because it exists as the body of Christ. And that provokes people to have to deal with themselves before Christ. But the church is also a big provocation within the church. We are constantly provoking each other. Hopefully, again, to good things. But not always. Some people are negatively provoking you right now and praise the Lord, you're learning how to love more because of their provocation. We call them grace growers. Right, Les? These are those who come along every now and then and they have expectations and demands. You go, oh Lord, help me love them because right now I don't. I'm not feeling it, but for you, Jesus, I'll do it. Provoking love. In the church. I, I think about this from time to time, but remember, Jesus is the one who started this thing. The church is not a creation of man. The church is not a bunch of people going together and saying, Wow, we really need to, you know, solidify our place in the world. So let's assemble. Let's call ourselves something. Ecclesia, that sounds good. No, Jesus used the word. Jesus called it forth. Matthew 16, 18. I also say to you, talking to Peter, that you are Petros, rocky, and upon this Petra, this massive stone, this rock, literally of the faith statement he had just made, that Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church. First time the word Ecclesia is used in the New Testament. Jesus used it, and He said, I will build it. This is His doing. The church is Jesus' building program. You know, we just went through a building program here, and you're sitting in it. The church is Jesus' building program. And the pastor here is calling for church attendance. He is. I don't know how you get around that. Don't forsake our assembling together, as is the habit of some. But encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Yes, we should be in church, not in the sanctuary, the building, as so much as in the the relationship, the community of other believers, which is what we're doing here tonight. It's just one more opportunity to do that—to be in church. Yes, we should be, and he calls for this church attendance. It's funny, Les and Donna and, and, and Deb were running a little late tonight visiting Jim in the hospital. And I got a, I got a text like an hour ago, hey, let, uh, Les ask me, let Rick know I, I may be running a little bit late tonight. And I texted back, don't worry, I'll, I'll hold the rolls until you get there so we can check off your name. <laughs> you know what? He's calling for church attendance, but maybe not like we would think. He's calling for us to attend to one another in the body of Christ. He's saying, let... Your fellow believers matter to you. Attend to them. Don't avoid being with them. And if there are times of assembly, hey, life's hard enough, right? Busy enough. At least we have times where we know we can assemble and other believers are going to be there. That's why this is so important. Why it matters so much. It's why I'm so thankful every Wednesday night that you all keep showing up. That you're here. You're not just here for the Word which is marvelous. You're not just here for worship, which is wonderful. You're here to be in the assembly. And we need this all the more. In a season where the world is getting harder, and life is getting busier, and many Christians are (laughs) getting in the habit of forsaking the assembly, the pastor says, we need each other all the more. We really do. Okay, but how does that work if I've been hurt by the church? Because... I have been hurt by the church, someone may say. So if I've been hurt by the church, I don't want to be with the church. Listen. Simply put, the love you have for brothers and sisters in the body of Christ depends on one thing. Who you're looking at. Who you're looking at. Hey, if you're looking at yourself, man, when my eyes are on me, I go inward and selfish. I only worry about me. I get, you know, self-centered and and I get sensitive and I'm easily hurt when I'm looking at me. On the other hand, when my eyes are on other Christians, I engage in false false comparisons. I start looking at how they live versus how I live. I start to have unfair expectations because I'm looking at them and they're not measuring up. You know, the truth is when I look at someone who's not measuring up, I don't know the full story. I don't know what's going on in their life. It's like driving down the road and someone cuts you off angrily and shakes a fist at you and you think, what a jerk! And you don't know that they're on their way back from the hospital because they have a friend who just died. You don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. I can sit here every week and look at you all in the face. I don't have any idea what's happening in your lives unless we talk. Unless we have... I know Joel was shoveling rocks today. (laughs) Because Glenn, the taskmaster, was making him do work. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I See, I don't know what's going on. So if I'm looking at you, my eyes are in the wrong place. When I'm looking at Jesus, you look awfully good. Because I know He loves you. When I'm looking at Jesus, I'm not worried about myself. Eyes on Jesus. And when our eyes are on Jesus, we love better. So he says, let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Eyes on Jesus. Because the Bible says, Proverbs ten twelve: hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. The Bible says in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Both the sins of your brothers and sisters and your own. Love covers. So, provoke one another to love and to good deeds. We can either stir up strife or we can provoke love. Depending again on who we are looking at. If it's Jesus, the outcome's gonna be love. And get this, he ties this community of faith and hope and love all together with the day drawing near. I mean, that's, that's like the impetus of the whole thing. Let's have faith. Let's hold on to love and, and, and hope. Why? Because the day is drawing near. Because we're almost there. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, just, I love this. Learn the parable, Matthew 24, 32, from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know summer is near. And so you too, when you see all these things, recognize He is near right at the door. We go up to Caesarea Philippi when we travel to Israel. And yes, I'm thinking a lot about that right now because we're just a few weeks away from that trip. And Caesarea Philippi in the springtime is just beautiful. Banias, it's up in the northern part of Israel. It looks actually a lot like here. Very green, waterfalls rushing, just a beautiful, there's a a nature walk that we get to do up there. And Caesarea Philippi, when you're walking up through the waterfalls and up toward, there's this massive rock up there, and we believe that's right where Jesus was teaching on, I will build my church, my rock, you know. And there are fig trees everywhere, wild ones. You can reach up and you can pluck off what they call summer figs or early figs not summer figs summer figs are the nice brown juicy dessert kind of fruity figs kind of that you find in fig newtons eventually the early figs are hard and they're brown or they're greenish and they are sustenance you could eat them they don't taste very good but you can pluck those off and you can eat them and continue on your way and in ancient israel often they did that and i oh, whenever i read this Learn the parable from the fig tree. I am I'm in Caesarea Philippi, not because Jesus was. He wasn't. He was on the Mount of Olives when he was sharing this. But I, I think of being right there, and and every time when I go there, I pluck some new figs off, stick them in my backpack, and wait till they rot and then throw them away. But I, I pluck them, <laughs> just you know, and so green. And I think about the figs, and the summer's near. And you know in Israel, plucking those figs off, those new figs, you know summer's around the corner. Because, I'll tell you what, four or five weeks earlier, there's nothing there. Dead and brown, like Southern California. But in the spring, goes green. Learn that parable. The fig tree, of course, is Israel. And I won't get into all the prophecy. We've studied that many times. The fig tree being representative of Israel. Well, Israel became a nation in 1948. The fig tree is blossoming. It is budding. My friend, summer is near. Recognize when you see these things that he is near right at the door. Jesus said, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And I think that's the generation alive at the time that the fig tree began to bud, which would be 1948, which puts us in the last generation what if you're wrong, Rick? Well, what if I am? (laughs) Generation may also refer to the Jewish people as a people group. This generation, this people will not pass away until all these things have taken place. He's going to usher them right on into the kingdom. Point is this. We're near. The day is drawing near. The Hebrew pastor said that 2,000 years ago. Let us stir each other up, encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is the substance of the motivation of the Christian life. Knowing His coming is imminent. Jesus said in Luke 21, 28, when these things begin to take place, talking about birth pangs and such, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Philippians 4.5, Paul just said, the Lord is near, and He is. Oh, He's been near for 2,000 years, intimately, personally, by His Spirit, but He is near in His coming. Revelation 22.20, closing out the Scriptures, my favorite verse, He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly, amen, come Lord Jesus. Which I say more on bad days than any other time. <laughs> come Lord Jesus. But notice, what the pastor does here is he connects the imminent return of Christ with the intimate life of the church. As we see the day drawing near, therefore do these things. Let us have faith. Let us have hope. Let us provoke love. Why? Because the day's drawing near. Because this will not spin on forever because He is right at the door. We need each other. We really do. Even when we tick each other off, we need each other. I'll give you one last example about this, the unity of community, when, when Cheryl and I adopted Honorary Naomi and David, we knew in that moment we were making a decision, and that is to increase the size of our family from f- five to eight. We also knew, and we didn't even have to know this because we, we got it in heart. That when Honorary Naomi and David came home, they were as much our children as Corey, Hannah, and Hayden were before them. They're, they're my kids. I will fight to the death for any one of my six kids. But, but they're adopted. And people would say things, it would just, oh man, it would just bug me. They'd say things like, so um, how many real kids do you have? Like, what do you think these three are? Fabrications? Are they invisible or something? What are you talking about? How many real kids? These are my real kids. No, no, I don't mean that. No, I mean your, you know, your kids. These are my kids. The unity, and here's my point. All my kids are loved the same. They're my family. It doesn't matter what they do, they're my children. I wish we would apply that same mentality to the church. I don't care what you do. Tim, you're my brother. no matter what you do to me, and you may wrong me in the most horrific way. You, you haven't. Tim and I are good. We're good. <laughs> but you may wrong me in some way that hurts deeply. You're still my brother. Do I kick my brother out? Do I boot my children out? because, wow, well, they've just gone too far? No, I don't. They're my kids. I don't walk away. This is my family. Hey, that's us. And I don't care how we tick each other off, and we will, and we do, consider it just a lovely provocation of love. You are provoking love out of me right now, man. Let's love each other that way. We don't walk away. We stick. And we say whatever the situation is, I'm going to love you more because I've got faith, I've got hope. He's coming. The day is drawing near. And then Paul says over in Romans 13.10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of law. Do this. Why, Paul? Knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Which is a great statement, because you know what? This week, salvation is nearer to us than it was when we studied Romans 13. And every moment that passes, salvation is just nearer and nearer and nearer. The day is drawing near. Part 3. If you're taking notes, and if you're not, just listen to my little fancy sayings. Part 3 is the singularity of the sacrifice, and it's what we studied on Sunday morning. For if we go on sinning willfully and after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a terrifying expectation of the judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries, Isaiah 26.11, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said... Deuteronomy 35 and 36 vengeance is mine I will repay and again the Lord will judge his people it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God note the context what he just said was let's provoke love guess what that's what he's doing he's provoking love and hope and faith out of his brothers and sisters He's not, as we talked about Sunday morning, just trying to stir up some kind of theological controversy. No, he's provoking them to move forward. This is not a debate on whether or not you can lose your salvation. That is the furthest thing from the Hebrew pastor's mind right here. What's on his mind? Provoking his brothers and sisters in Christ. Spurring them on, encouraging them forward. Now, Charles Spurgeon says of this this section of verses... Christ has offered Himself and died and suffered in our stead and gone into His glory. And if you cannot depend upon Him, what more would you have Him do? Shall He come again and die? If you've rejected Him once, you would reject Him though He died twice. There remains no other sacrifice for sin. Only this one. It's perfect, and it is the only way. It's either Jesus or judgment. It is either Christ or condemnation. And again, the pastor is not undermining faith. He's provoking it. So, the reverberation of the inauguration continues to this day. The unity of community is where this all begins to play out in our spiritual lives and the single singularity of the sacrifice, declaring Jesus is it. He's it. Done deal. Which brings us now to the last part. Part four, the preservation of persecution. And I like this section, verse thirty two. Rick, you like all the sections. I know. But remember the former days. When after being enlightened, and I pointed out before, enlightened to the Hebrew pastor means saved. If you're enlightened, you get it. You have the Spirit of the Living God. He says, remember the former days, brothers and sisters, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. And then he describes this uh, partly by being made a public spectacle, through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. This is the the preservation of persecution. Persecution. The confidence here that they have. He's saying, look, that that's not in spite of your suffering. It was in light of your suffering. Remember that, guys? You first came to Jesus and it got hard right away. And they were coming at you immediately. And you were confident. And you were bold. You were like Emperor Kuzco. You know, tied to Pacha. On that log rushing down the river. You know? Hacha sitting there and he's facing forward and he sees it and he says, oh no. I've used this example before, but it's just perfect. Kuzco says, what's the matter? Big waterfall? Yep. Sharp rocks at the bottom? Yep. Bring it on. <laughs> that was the attitude that they had. Bring it on. Waterfall ahead? Persecution for Jesus? Tough times? Bring it on. And that is so much the mentality of young believers. Think about it. When you first gave your life to Jesus, weren't you willing to go to the mattresses for Him? Weren't you willing to fight the fight? People would preach sermons about fighting the good fight of faith, and you go, yeah, yeah, bring it on. And then, you know, you walk with Jesus a while, and you get a little older, and and you find when you get up in the morning, you make sounds like, oh. Your body hurts for absolutely no reason whatsoever. You realize you have a crick in your back and you don't know why. And suddenly someone says, It's going to get hard, and you go, oh, Man. The Hebrew writer says, Remember what it was like when you first started. Paul said in another place, As you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. Remember what it was like? Fired up. Man, you had newbie nerve, beginner bravado. You were ready to take on the world for Jesus. These believers had that once. But what he's getting at here is the previous and intense persecution preserved their faith rather than chipping away at it. The suffering and hardship, man, this is, this is good stuff. This is valuable in a life of faith. By the way, as we look at this, We at least understand or can see that this letter cannot have been intended for the church in Jerusalem. It's a letter to Hebrew Christians, but not to the Jerusalem church. How do you know that? Because in the Jerusalem church, think about this with me, Stephen was stoned to death as early as 33, perhaps 34 A.D. And then in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 it says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him and Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and he would put them into prison. That's how it started. Just the explosion of persecution in Jerusalem. Ten years later, A.D. 43, Acts chapter 12, verse 2 says, Now about that time, Herod the king, that's Herod Agrippa, laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, and he had James the brother of John put to death with a sword. How's that? Beheaded with the sword. What I'm saying is the Jerusalem church immediately... Experienced intense persecution to the point of martyrdom. These Jewish believers had not experienced that. What have they experienced? Well, they were made a public spectacle. Anyone ever make fun of you for your faith? That's part of the persecution. Um, they were sharers with those who were mistreated. They showed sympathy to prisoners. They joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. So the worst thing that happened here was they were made fun of and they lost property rights. And he says later on, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. These Hebrew believers hadn't shed blood, had not experienced martyrdom, so it can't be the Jerusalem church. These are Jewish believers somewhere else but they had experienced persecution. And I point that out because maybe you haven't shed blood for your faith. Anyone here shed blood for your faith in Jesus? I didn't think so. Me either. I shed blood falling off my bike several times as a kid, but that was a different thing. You haven't experienced that. Sometimes then we hear the word persecution and we go, oh, yeah, it's really not me. I wonder if I really have a solid faith if I haven't been persecuted the way it's described here. Okay, Have you ever had someone come at you because you believe in Jesus? you ever ever have a family member get angry with you because you brought up his name? That's persecution. You ever have loss in your life of, of any measure because you follow him so you can't do that. so that means you're going to lose what you could have gotten if you hadn't followed him? That's persecution. And the point is that all of this feeds our faith. This is encouragement. He's writing an encouraging letter and in this letter of encouragement in this encouraging sermon he says remember your perseverance in persecution. Remember when it was hard? That's not normally what I bring up with people. Someone's having a hard day, I don't typically say, you know, Daniel, you're having a rough day right now. Do you remember 20 years ago in that situation? Do you remember that? How bad that how awful that was? Have a great day. <laughs> You know, we try to turn away from persecution. He's turning right into persecution. Why? Because God's Word is littered with encouraging words of suffering. and Suffering is not all the negative that it was cracked down to be. I... <laughs> Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's a blessing. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's a good thing. Perhaps maybe we should sit down and think about our persecution from time to time and take courage from it. And know that that's, that's not a bad thing, First Timothy 3:12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. Or Revelation 13 verse 10. If anyone is destined for captivity to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance of the faith of the saints. He might as well have said, here is the persecution of the faith of the saints because it's the same thing. That persecution yields perseverance. I am honestly praying less these days for people to be protected. I'm praying more that people will develop, and myself as well, bold perseverance. If you want someone to pray for protection, don't come asking me because I'm, I'm not praying that right now. Maybe I will again sometime. Even when we were praying for Cam and Joe as they're stepping into the role of, of children's ministry here on Sunday morning. I'm not praying that they be protected. I'm not praying that their family be protected. I pray that they will have strength. I pray that they will be prepared. I pray that they will be boldly confident. But you know what? To pray away persecution is to take away stuff that feeds our faith. So we pray for confidence and boldness in light of persecution. We're not praying for persecution for the sake of persecution. Okay, get that right. Think about this. Remember back in early 70s, there was a poster that came out. I know some of you are going to know exactly where I'm going with this. It was a black and white pop art poster and it was of a Siamese cat clinging to a bamboo pole. You remember what the caption was? Hang in, there, Hang in there baby. You can look it up online. Hang in there baby. Here's the thing. Eventually you know that cat went down. And the truth is not every cat lands on its feet. I looked it up. Peteducation.com. This is important. If cats fall a short distance, they can almost always right themselves and land on their feet. If they fall for more than one or two floors, however, they may sustain severe or even fatal injuries. (laughs) Point is this. Perseverance, for the sake of perseverance, won't get you anywhere but down. You know, those who say, persevere, and you'll be able to persevere more. Well, that's great. That does nothing for you. Perseverance is the staging ground for something far more valuable. Verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come, and he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The, the whole issue of persecution is for faith. And if that's the direction and that's the focus, and that's where my eyes are, my eyes are on Jesus, even in persecution, well, guess what? My faith is going to get strong. If I'm just hanging in there, baby, hoping someone's going to come along and get me off this pole, it's not going to happen. But I'm hanging in there because I trust Jesus. Jesus. I'm hanging in there because He is my hope. I'm hanging in there because by doing so, I can love the brethren more. Well, that's a different thing altogether. That makes persecution something of great value. By the way, we come now to the end of this chapter and we find the 35th of 40 direct Old Testament quotes in the Hebrew sermon. You think I put a lot of verses up. This guy, 40 verses. Rachel 40 verses Remember how the sermon began now stay with me a few more minutes here Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 said God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world God spoke through the prophets so masterfully Inspired by the Spirit, the pastor speaks through the prophets. And again, 40 different direct quotes and I think 85, 86 allusions to Old Testament Hebrew scripture stories fill this sermon. But he does so to bring us to Jesus. And so here another Jewish prophet is recited in verses 37 and 38. He's in good company. So far we've already heard from Moses, David, Natan, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Solomon. And now we hear from Habakkuk. Habakkuk the prophet. God spoke to the fathers through Habakkuk. With a two-pronged vision of something coming. And I want you to see this. You can either listen or turn there. But the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Chapter 2, it's toward the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, among the minor prophets, the 12 as they're called. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1 I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. And then the Lord answered me. Now, what's going on here? Well, Habakkuk has spent the first chapter crying out to and in a way whining to the Lord. Now he's stationing himself for a response. And chapter 2 is God's response. The Lord answered me and said, Verse 2, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. "...for it certainly will come, it will not delay, but as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith." Now get the context. It's important for what the pastor is writing. Habakkuk prophesied briefly, very briefly, from 609 to 604 B.C. Across a span of five years, his little three-chapter book focused heavily on something that was coming... On an immediate impending doom for Jerusalem, if you're thinking about the time frame, 609 to 604, you know what was coming. The destruction of Babylon. The the blitzkrieg, if you will, of Babylon coming in on Jerusalem. While Habakkuk's prophecies were hanging in the air over Jerusalem, it happened. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon swept in, leveled the city, destroyed the temple, carried off the people into captivity, and that was the first destruction of two. But in these last days, and that's what he's talking about, wait for it, let the one who reads it, that he may run, verse 2, as in run for your life, because Babylon's about to destroy your world. And he says it hastens toward the goal it will not fail though it tarries way for it it will certainly come it will not delay the destruction of mighty Babylon the conquest of Nebuchadnezzar it's on the way you've had warning after warning you had Jeremiah weeping for decades and now through Habakkuk one last warning comes and the impending doom came just as God said it would But what we learn here in these last days, the Spirit gives a further connotation to the same verse. If you listen again, and you stay there in Habakkuk chapter 2, but in Hebrews 10.37, reading that again, for yet in a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. He being Jesus Christ. He being the full implementation now of the prophecy. It wasn't just Babylon. Babylon was a a shadow. Something coming. Something great. A judgment that would come with it. Well, guess what? Jesus is coming. And He is coming to judge. Though He tarries, wait for Him. He is coming. He is hastening toward the goal. Habakkuk, what he brought there was an immediate prophecy of Babylon and a furtive or secretive prophecy of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, well, wait a second. That means we're on a 2,600-year delay. He who's coming will come. Wait for it. Well, we've been waiting for it. And that's the point. Remember what we said just a few minutes ago. The imminent return of Christ is directly connected to the intimate life of the church. Our focus on the immediacy, the imminency of His soon return will impact how we live our lives. It impacted Paul 2,000 years ago. It impacted the church 1,500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago. Those who were longing for the coming of Jesus, waiting and expecting His coming to be at any time, lived differently than those who thought, well, He'll come, but who knows when. And so it is today. 2018. And there are those who would say, Rick, for 14 years in this church fellowship, you've been saying he's coming. You've been saying, Lord willing, if we meet next week. And you know what? He's closer than he was. And his coming is soon. It will be without delay. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Revelation 3.11, Jesus said, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Revelation two seven, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Because he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book, uh, blessed is he who heeds these words. And then Revelation 22.20, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. He uses words like soon and quickly. It's actually just one word. It's the same word. We'll look at this more closely, Lord willing, next fall, when we study Revelation, but the word that's translated soon or quickly is in taxi. It's two Greek words here, in taxi. And I've said before, think about being in a taxi. And you start to get the idea. Taxi It's where we get our word tachometer. It's how we measure RPMs in our car think about it you hit the pedal and the RPMs speed up and what the word indicates is a quick and sudden occurrence as though Jesus saying uh, he who testifies to these things says yes I am coming suddenly these things will suddenly take place and the idea is when Jesus leans in to return to the earth he will lean in and boom it will be over it will be that fast. There will be no time to pack a bag. There will be no time to go, Oh, hang on, Jesus, I've got to finish this project. Just a minute, Lord, I have a few things that I've left undone. No time. He will come suddenly without delay. That's the promise. And God, by His wisdom, has given that to the church every day for 2,000 years that we would live with the imminent return of Jesus in mind. As we see the day drawing near, he said. How do we hold on? Final thoughts. Back to Habakkuk. The prophet's greatest concern, listen to this, the prophet's greatest concern as he cried out to God was not the brutal threat of an outward foe, his greatest concern was the moral deterioration of the inner life of his people, Israel. The whole first chapter of Habakkuk, he's crying out and saying, Lord, it's bad down here. Why don't you do something? No one believes. The faith is gone. It's just morally corrupt. He's whining. In fact, you could, you could divide Habakkuk's prophecy into three sections. Part one is whining. Part two is wrestling. And part three is revelation. Whining, wrestling, and... Revelation. If you want to go with W's, that would be fine. He's he's in a process of faith development. Habakkuk's name means wrestle or embrace, and he's having to wrestle with God to embrace faith, which is the point of the whole thing. Habakkuk chapter two verse four: Behold, as for the proud one, God says, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith have a good faith is what's required here you see what's going on all around you faith live by faith hebrews 10:28 says my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him that variant reading through the septuagint translation point is god's got a schedule God knows exactly what He's doing. He's not going to delay. But of that day and of that hour, Jesus said, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone knows. Matthew 24, 36. And I'm telling you tonight, the Lord Jesus will return. He He will be right on time. And He is very near. Have faith in that. Trust in that. How do I do that, Rick? Eyes on Jesus. Eyes on Jesus and your faith will increase. Eyes on Jesus and your hope will be assured. Eyes on Jesus and you will love better. But faith is the issue. Do we trust Him? Verse 39, We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And that is the preservation even of persecution. Persecution that increases faith, that preserves the mind and the heart. And it all comes of just trusting the Lord. Israel shrank back into destruction twice. What an example. A tragic example. 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came in. They shrank back to destruction. Israel shrank back to destruction in A.D. 70 when Rome wiped out the city again. And you know what was happening in Israel both times? Their destruction was preceded by moral and spiritual corrosion. Lack of faith. And when the faith is gone, the persecution does you no good whatsoever. You just end up destroyed. Why didn't God step in and save them? Because Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. And we're going to talk about that on Sunday morning. By the way, listen to Habakkuk's Final, resolute answer to God. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, though there be no fruit on the vines, both speaking of Israel, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no fruit, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. (laughs) Salvation is the word Yeshua. I will rejoice in the God of my Jesus. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places because faith gives us hinds feet to walk on high.